He's learning how to talk even, ain't he? We shouldn't talk with our mouth full, should we? My name's Rick and I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober through God's grace both sides of sponsorship since July 3rd, 1986. For that, I'll be forever grateful. I don't... I hope that none of that applause was for me, but I hope it was for you and for the glory of God and for the fellowship and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay? I've had a ball this weekend, and I want to thank you for asking me to come out. John called me a couple of years ago and asked me if I'd come out and talk, and I started laughing. I said, oh, I don't think they'll let that happen. But anyway, he got a hold of the tape somewhere, and here we are. And... Uh, Ginger was able to come, and, and we just have had a ball. Okay. Before I forget about it, I, I need to thank John. I want to thank all of you for your kindness. It, uh, it, uh, it's very, very kind. It's not at all put offish here. There's a, a real genuine sense of openness and love that is uh, uh, it's pretty important for a guy like me because uh, I don't like people a lot. Because um, some of you are really scary, <clears throat> and the rest of you are just stupid. So, <laughs> shit. We better get this out of the way before I start using hand gestures. Ginger gave a great talk Friday night. Uh, I knew she would because uh, she knows that this thing's bigger than her and that God will show up and do what God does with us. Ruth gave a great talk last night. I thought about it. She took her shoes off. and You know, I did that once. It ain't like I got the same damn shoes on I've worn since I was 12. I take them off every day, but I did it once before I was talking. We was at it. You know, some of you that know the big book says that if we do this stuff and we stay on the firing line of life, that, that we may be taken into the most sordid places on earth. All right? I'm going to tell you where that is. It's called the Camel Club in Ottumwa, Iowa. Okay? If you're ever asked to talk there, suit up with the shield and the dagger of God. Because you walk in the place and there's pool tables and pinball machines and video, and it, it, you just go, oh my, not much has changed here, has it? And I'm standing in front of these people, and it's at their, uh, their anniversary banquet or something, and there's 100 or 150 of them, and I, and I guess this was about 10 or 12 years ago. And I'd been reading in some non-conference approved literature a week or so before that where somebody was in a bind one time, a long, long time ago, and they were a little bit worried about how they were going to meet the challenge it was that they was going to face. And somebody showed up and told them, wherever the soles of your feet touch, you will be standing on hallowed ground and you'll be protected. And that guy remembered it at just the right time. And that night as I was introducing myself, that crossed my mind and I took my shoes off. And I gave one of the best talks that I've ever given. And I tried it a couple of weeks later, and my ego was all wrapped around it because I thought that if I just repeated the process, the same thing would happen. And I know now what I was doing is I was worshiping Richard. But she said that it made her comfortable with her feet off, or with her shoes off. 
I got to thinking maybe I could use that and take my teeth out, but I don't think that'd be a real good idea. Gary's talk filled the room with spirit. It's my hope and prayer that sometime in the next hour or so we get to experience that again. The work that Gary has done in Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life. He was my great-grand sponsor for a while. Then he was my grand sponsor for a while. And now he's my Gary. Okay? We need, I'm going to tell him this story. About a month or so ago, two months ago, I called Gary and said, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty solid now, but eventually I'm going to need to have one of them things they call a sponsor or something like that. I kind of look at it as though we've been, I've been courting him for six or eight weeks, and we've been visiting. And I finally got around to asking him to go steady. And I said, I don't like the word sponsor. I don't know whether to call you spiritual advisor, man, or whatever, teacher, whatever. He said, why don't you just call me Gary? So, so I like that. The reason I say that is not so that there's any guilt by association, but so that you know that I've been, I've been around this thing for 19 years, and I know a little bit, but I know enough to know that if I think that I'm beyond guidance and direction from human beings who live a spiritual life, I'm a damn fool. I suffered enough from alcoholism to know that I don't want to do that no more. And I know enough about alcoholism to know that there probably ain't nothing I can do to prevent it from happening. Okay? You did a great job this morning. Great talk. Okay, enough of the kudos. Let's have some fun, all right? I'm a member of the Riverview Group Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet in Muscatine, Iowa, a shitload. Okay, we got seven meetings a week. We meet at 704 South Hauser. That's my home group. Whenever I'm in town and we have business meetings, I go there and vote. We have business meetings on Sunday mornings. I'm not always there. I'm the Area 24 Treatment Facilities Committee Chairperson. That means I'm involved in the service structure Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe in that circle and the triangle. Something about it just makes some sense to me. Okay. I live in Muscatine, Iowa. Actually, I live outside of Muscatine, Iowa in a little paradise that we call Rancho Bizarro. It's a house that we built. Oh, laugh. You heard the story about the donkey showing up, didn't you, yesterday? That ain't shit. (laughs) Ginger calls me on the company radio. I'm out on the dredge one day, and Ginger gets on the radio and goes, Hey, can you come home? And I said, "Uh, Probably. Why? She said, Because there's a goat on the front porch. And I said, honey, say that again. Sound like you said there was a goat on the front porch. And she said, there is. There's a damn goat on the front porch. So we get down home, and yeah, there's a goat on the porch, and we got dogs. Now, evidently, dogs and goats aren't packed animals together. because, uh, And when the goat got in the house, things got real interesting. (laughs) And that was almost as strange as the day that she called me on the cell phone and said, now listen... Are you headed home yet? And I said, well, in a few minutes. She said, well, if the ambulance and the fire trucks are still here, don't freak out too much. And I'm like, what's up with that? She said, well, a plane crashed in the front yard. So 
And it wasn't really in the front yard. It was about 100 feet out in the, in the bean field from the front yard. See, we kind of live at the end of a runway, so that wasn't all that weird. I'm sitting with a young fellow that I'm sponsoring one night. And it's about midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning. And the old dog, old Bo's outside, and he starts barking and all of this. And we're talking, talking with this kid about the second step. And all of a sudden, we hear a boom. It's a big boom. So I go outside, look around the corner, and my truck's on fire. The kid says, this place is weird. <laughs> he describes that to this day. He says, I don't believe in burning bush experiences, but I do believe in burning truck experiences. <laughs> it was a Ford truck, and there's a bunch of yin-yangs from up in Cedar Rapids. It's about 70 miles from where I live. I sponsor a couple of them. We all do this work together, and we're all brothers. And they, they, they showed up down to our house a couple of weeks later and said they'd come up with a new, is it an acronym where you take letters? And they said they'd come up with a new one for that, for Ford. I said, well, is it fix or repair daily? And they said, no, fire on Rick's driveway. <laughs> so if you got the guts and you're ever in Muscatine, stop on down. Hell, we'll give you supper and stuff. This ain't going where I thought it was going to. I'm alcoholic. And I know what that means. When I first said that, I didn't have a clue what it meant. I just knew that everybody else was saying it. And when you're in Rome, do what the Romans do. And I can say that because I've been to Rome. If you don't do what they do, they think you're an American and they won't treat you very nice. I was in Alcoholics Anonymous about three or four months and I hadn't drank. And I asked somebody, how do you know if you're really alcoholic? You know what he said to me? Why don't you go drink till you know? Please don't ever say that to someone because they might take you up on it. And had I took him up on it, I may not have been here today. Because the way alcoholism acted in my life, getting sober on July 3rd, 1986, wasn't some decision that I made. Okay? It's not just something I woke up and said, gee, I think today's the day that I'll go join Alcoholics Anonymous. And if it don't work, maybe I'll try it again. That's not the way it worked for me. And so I asked somebody else, and you know what he said? He said the same thing. And there was a couple of old guys there who blessed their hearts. Maybe they couldn't tell me about the doctor's opinion, and maybe they couldn't tell me about how a mental obsession looked in their life. But they said, kid, we've seen you when you came in here, and we know part of your story, and you're in the right place. Just keep coming back, okay? So I did that. And I did what everything that anybody asked me to do. I did it. I mean that. I don't I I would challenge you to find one person who made a suggestion to me in AA that I didn't do. I cleaned ashtrays. I remember the day that Gene Cook looked at me and said, You know, why don't you go make coffee, kid? And I sat and looked at him and he said, You don't know how, do you? And I'm 26 years old, and I'm a tough guy. And I'm just looking at him. He says, come on, you've been drinking enough of this shit. It's time you learned how to make it. And he showed me how to make coffee, and I made coffee. 
and I shoveled snow off the sidewalk, and I painted the building, and I did. I went on 12-step calls, whatever that was. Basically, that meant stop drinking and let us take you to a treatment center. I did all that stuff. Ginger showed up after I was sober about a year, asked me to come to a meeting. Her, her memory of how all of that went on was a little different than mine. She said, will you come pick me up and take me? To, will you meet me at a meeting is what she said. And I said, sure. And I think I said, should I bring my toothbrush? Meaning, am I going to be spending the night? And um, didn't work out that way. I moved in about a week and a half later. And she had these little kids. And uh, about six months later or so, we got married. Seemed like the right thing to do at the time. I told my dad, I think I'm going to marry your dad. And he started laughing. I said, what's that all about? And he said, that'll take some of the puppy out of you. <laughs> Boy, was he right. Because <laughs> what happened was I screwed around and I fell in love. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I, I found out years later what that meant. Is that, and it wasn't so much that I fell in love with Ginger. I mean, I did, but... Man, you know, she had her stuff, but those little kids didn't. And I somehow knew that I know who their dad is. I know who their father is. I know the guy. And I can tell you that there's only one time that, you, that one of them heard me say anything unkind about him. And I don't know where that dignity came from. But I knew that I was going to have a major influence on their life. And that scared hell out of me. And I'm sober about a year and a half and we get married. And I get a job. And I'm, I'm working at this job. And I'm welding inside of broken railroad cars. I'm kind of an outdoorsy kind of guy. But I'm working inside of a building that doesn't have any windows. And then working inside of a railroad tank car with a welding hood underneath me. And this time of year you go to work in the dark and you come home in the dark. And one day I realize I'm going to be doing this the rest of my damn life. I'm not very happy about it, and I want to leave. And then I go and I look at the supper table, and there ain't one plate there. There's four. And I can't go. And I got just about this much grown up in me to say i got to stay here. Believe me, you're going to find out that I'm alcoholic. It's going to take us a while to get there. And what started to happen was I started to draw more and more within myself because I knew I was up against something I couldn't whoop. And I'm going to meet, I'm going to five or six meetings a week. And the only relief that I ever, ever, ever really got was from playing a guitar. And Ginger hated that guitar. Because she said that was, she would watch me play that guitar and she'd say, man, I wish he had hold me like that. And I wish he could get that piece somewhere else. After I've been sober about four years, I've, I'm not really doing good at all. And I end up, uh, I end up at, a, at an internationally known treatment center saying, what can you do to make me right? About a year and a half after that, at one of these things, I met a guy. He came and he talked, and he was a Sunday morning speaker, and I was his host. And he was an asshole. <laughs> But he was my kind of asshole. (laughs) 
He came as a replacement. It's a good thing. Because if they'd have sent the one that was supposed to come, I wasn't ready to hear him yet. He was way too scary. But this one that showed up was just smart-ass enough and arrogant enough and chain smoke Marlboros and... And then he started talking. Yeah, he ate. He liked to eat. And we... Uh, well, I asked him a question at lunch. And I said, you know, I've been having a little trouble with this ninth step stuff. I can't quite seem to get it straightened out. Yada, yada, yada. He, he's, I'll never forget. He's taking a bite. A ginger's sitting next to him. They're sitting across the table from him. He's getting ready to take a bite of salad. And he's got a fork full of salad. And he's getting ready to put it in his mouth. And he just looks at me. And he puts it down and he says, do you want to have a nice, quiet lunch or do you really want to talk about this? <laughs> Anybody ever ask you that? Just go ahead and eat, okay? <laughs> because there's some stuff that I really wish I'd have never known, okay? And what he says to me is he says, you've been around AA a long time, haven't you? I said, well, not really. He said, how long have you been sober? I said, almost six years. Well, that's a long time. He said, you know a lot of stuff, don't you? You know a lot of stuff about Alcoholics Anonymous and staying sober. And and I'm going, yeah, I, I guess I do, as a matter of fact. And he holds up a coffee cup and he says, if everything that you know will fit in this coffee cup, excuse me, how big of a container will it take to hold what you don't know? about alcoholism and about yourself and about God. I went, uh, a really big one, I think. And he went through this spiel about why I wasn't able to do the ninth step. And I'll tell it to you. It'll only take um, 30 seconds or a minute. He said, the reason that you haven't done the ninth step is because you've not made a list of all the people that you're consciously aware of that you've caused harm to and become willing to make amends to them. And the reason that you haven't done that is because you haven't humbly asked God to remove your shortcomings. And the reason that you haven't done that is because you haven't become entirely willing to have them taken. And the reason that you haven't done that is because you've never really done a fifth step in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason that you haven't done that is because you've never really done a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. And the reason that you haven't done that is because you've never abandoned your life to God. And the reason that you haven't done that is because you don't believe God will make you sane. And the reason that you don't, haven't done that is because you don't think that you're powerless over alcohol and that your life is unmanageable. You think that you can control whether you ever drink again or not. You think that you have a choice whether you ever pick up a drink of alcohol again. Now, I think I'm just going to eat lunch. <laughs> and I think he said more than that. But that's really all I remember. And I remember walking out of that restaurant saying to Ginger, what the hell did that guy just say to me? And she said, I don't know that it's anything that hasn't been said before. The only thing is that you were able to hear it. And I asked this guy if he would work with me and he would show me what is that he knew about alcoholism and how he got well. Because as he talked to me, I could see that he wasn't the same guy that he was, that he, had, that he presented himself to be years before. And he said, the first thing we have to do, listen to this, this is a novel thought, and it, and, it's, and it may be something that some people in this room have never, ever thought of before. He said, we have to find out whether you're alcoholic or not. Because just because you say you are doesn't mean that you are. And I now know that. It's kind of like being pregnant, okay? I may really want to be pregnant, and I may say that I'm pregnant, but 
ain't going to happen, right? That's really a physical condition. that It just can't happen to me. Well, maybe that's saying God isn't everything, but it's probably not going to happen to me, okay? And the same thing is true with alcoholism. See, what we started to do is we started to look at some information in the doctor's opinion. Because what I was really saying to those guys five or six years before is, do I really belong here? Do I really belong in Alcoholics Anonymous? And do I really need to seek this spiritual stuff that people are talking about? And, 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 and what happened was I ended up getting caught up in a, in, a, in a mess of half measures and stuff like that and middle-of-the-road solutions. And at six years after my last drink, I was in many, many ways in worse shape than I was the day that I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay? And I don't for the life of me know why I didn't drink. The only thing I can say is that there was a little buffer of grace between me and rum. Because I'm the kind of guy who likes... I would just as soon sit in my living room... I had a living room in Florida where I had a blind and then drapes and then a blanket and then sleeping bags. And I'd sit there with some rum and some Coke. That's cocaine. You've got to explain that shit these days. (laughs) Glory be to God. Oh, my. And I sit there alone and I drink. Or I'd go sit in a hotel room, go rent a hotel room for the weekend, and just sit there and drink. Does that make me alcoholic? A lot of people would say so. But I didn't think it did. I didn't know. I thought there was more to it. See, I heard alcoholism being described by ending up in nut wards. And I heard alcoholism being described by jail cells and car wrecks and fist fights and divorce courts. And occasionally guys pee in their pants. And I went, ooh, that happened to me. But I never really understood a lot of that stuff because some of it happened to me and some of it didn't. I had one guy in our group who got drunk once a year. He'd go sell corn, stop by the tavern and cash a check for the corn, and he'd wake up in Chicago three or four days later. It happened to him every year. And I'm going, you know what, dude? If I could drink one week a year, I goddamn sure wouldn't be an Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? But the truth of the matter is, when that guy drank, he had absolutely no control over how much he drank. He was as alcoholic as they come. He was just somehow able to stay separated from alcohol for 50 weeks out of the year, okay? And so I heard all of these descriptions of alcoholism, and and none of it really fit me. And I'm at a place where it's six years after my last drink. I've had just about all the fun that I can stand. Serious. But I know that if I drink, I know what's waiting there. I'm under no delusion of what my life is going to be like when I start to drink. None. So I start entertaining thoughts about shotguns and stuff. I'm laying in bed one night. And I realized in a very, very, very real way that everybody around me would be much better off if I was just gone. And that wasn't an original thought. But what happened next was, because the next thought was, no, they wouldn't. They would be better off if you were changed. 
And I thought, what the hell does that mean? And I know that what that meant was I needed to continue doing the stuff that this guy from California was showing me how to do and that I needed to really find out about this stuff in the doctor's opinion. I had to really look at the truth as to whether I'm alcoholic or not, whether I have a physical allergy to alcohol. And he gave me some things to think about. He said that this allergy, this allergic reaction comes out in the way of a craving for more alcohol once I start to drink. Once I get alcohol in me, does this happen to me? And what he told me was if it did, if that happened to me, I wouldn't have a whole lot of trouble finding some experiences where I had some intentions and I started to drink and my intentions changed. Okay? That's not what he said. That's what I just said. Where... Where continuing to drink was more important than anything else. At the end end of uh, May of 1986, I had a a cousin who was a few years younger than me who got killed in a motorcycle wreck. And I was living in Florida and I came home. And I was, it took the Air Force a while for him to get Jeff's body back to Southern Iowa. And uh, I don't know what the hell happened. One day I wake up and I'm in a hotel room. And uh, I was with my buddy Salzberger, and I, I mean, not in the hotel room, but, uh, oh, like that shit ain't happening to any of you people anyway, you know? <laughs> I'm armed with the facts about myself. <laughs> anyway, I'm in this hotel room. And I, I know Salzberger had been with me the night before. I don't have a clue why I'm in this hotel room. Now I remember some girl, but where the hell is she at? She's gone. I go out in the parking lot, and I ain't got no car. I, got, I had Mom and Dad's car, so I go in. I call Salzburger. Dude, come on. you got to come get me. we got to go find Mom and Dad's car, man. I said, how late were you with me? He said, hell, I left you about 8.30 or 9. I said, did I still have Mom and Dad's car? And he said, yeah. I said, oh, shit, this ain't good. So we went and found Mom and Dad's car and took it home. And a few days later... I was sitting at the patio at Mom and Dad's house, and I was drinking beers. And Dad came home from work, and he started to mow the yard. And I, and I had a bunch of empty beer cans on the picnic table. It was hot out, and uh, Dad was mowing. I said, hey, Dad, you want a beer? And he said, sure, I'll drink a beer. And he drank one. And we visited a little bit, and then I said, hey, Dad, you want another beer? And he said, yeah, sure, I'll drink another one. And he drank it with me, and then after he got done with that one, I opened one, I handed it to him, said, here, have another one. He said, no, i got to finish mowing the yard. Strangest friggin' thing I ever heard in my life. <laughs> I had a yard in Florida, and that son of a bitch never got mowed. Well, think about it. It's hotter than hell in Florida when you got to mow the yard. And you make about two laps around the yard with the push mower. What happens? You get hot, you sweat. What happens then? You get thirsty. Stop and drink a beer. Another one would be just right. And by the time I have two, now I'm drinking. So we go out tomorrow and make about two laps around the yard. And that's a bit of a stretch on the truth, but it's a pretty good example of what happened to me when I started to drink. But anyway, Dad said, no, I'm going to finish mowing the yard. And, he, and I said, hey, Dad. And he said, what, bud? And I said, how the hell do you do that? He said, do what? I said, how do you drink two beers and then just go? Just go mow the yard. Just. 
He said, I don't understand. And he pointed at those empty beer cans and he said, I don't know how the hell you do that. He said, I don't understand how you do that. He said, I know you've been sitting here drinking six or seven hours. And he said, if I didn't, if I didn't see the beer cans, I wouldn't be able to tell you how to drink. He said, I also know that in 15 minutes you can turn as mean as a rattlesnake. And he said, I don't understand how you do that. You see, what Dr. Silkworth said in his opinion made very, very clear to me what went on with me and Dad that day. We are two completely different people. Dad doesn't suffer from an allergic reaction to alcohol. He's one of those guys that can take it or leave it alone. Doesn't matter to him, he was. Not that way with me. And I started to see that there's something that goes on there. A few days after that, or maybe the next day, we're down at Eldon for the funeral. And this is about as far as this is going to go with me drinking, maybe. Maybe not, I don't know. And my little cousin Jack ain't home. He's not at Uncle Art and Aunt Marilyn's. And I say, where's Jack? And they say he's downtown at the tavern. And this is at about maybe noon or something. I don't know. Eleven. I don't know. And I say, I'll go get him. And imagine what mom and dad's response to that was. You know, like hell you will. And I got a little pissy. You know, I mean, because they thought that I had so much that like, like I didn't have any respect and that I was going to go to Jeff's funeral while I'd been drinking, you know. And I was pissed because I'd been raised better than that, you know. And uh, I knew that that's not a good thing to do. You just don't do that. That's a, how that's a sacred thing. That's, you know. So anyway, after a little bit of negotiating and bargaining and stuff, I finally went downtown and I walked in the beer joint and I said, come on, cuz. I think he was the only one in there, but I can't really remember. If there was if there was more people, there was only a couple. And I said, come on, cuz, we got to go do this thing. And he said, have a drink with me. I said, uh-uh. Come on, we got to go do this. And he said, have a drink with me for Jeff. And... Uh, it's not like I didn't have any morality at all. It may have been screwed up morality and screwed up morals, but you know, to not take a drink from my dead cousin, there was something not right about that. Okay, so I got a rum and coke, and I drank three or four, maybe five more, and then we went home, and then we went to the church. And I'll never forget the look on my uncle Ralph's face walking down the aisle, just looking at. Me. Because you could smell it. I'm not real sure what Bill Wilson meant when he said pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, but I think it might have been something like that. And we went to the cemetery, and by this time it had been about an hour and 15 minutes since my last drink. And before the service was over, I walked up the hill of the cemetery to the beer joint that was at the top of the cemetery. And the next thing I remember was about 5 o'clock that afternoon, and some more people had showed up there. And the next thing I remember is being in another tavern that night, being with my mom and dad and my Aunt Noni, and I remember about five minutes of that. And the next thing that I remember is being at a softball game out in the middle of nowhere. The next thing I remember is another beer joint in a little town in southern Iowa. And the next thing that I remember is waking up in bed with some girl saying, Am I in Elden? And she said, yeah. And I said, how do I get to the restaurant from here? And she told me. Okay. None of these things were on my list of things to do today when I got up that morning. 
I didn't want to do that. I'm absolutely serious. I didn't want that to happen. But what happened was I took that drink. That's only one day. Okay? That's one day. I started drinking in July third night on the end of July of uh, uh, 1973. It was the first time I got to experience what alcohol does for me. You see, Dr. Silkworth says that these, these alcoholics are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can experience a sense of ease and comfort that comes at once from taking a few drinks. And Bill Wilson later on on page 52 describes that in a little bit more detail where he says we were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional nature. We were a prey to misery and depression, feeling a uselessness full of fear. We were unhappy. Go figure. Um, can't seem to be a real help to other people. Same thing. They're just like it's a long, short, long version and a short version. And, you know, that stuff had been going on with me for a number of years by the time I was 13. You know, I lived, I, grew up, I lived the first nine years of my life in a little bitty town in southern Iowa where my grandpa was a town drunk and my dad was the mayor. And it, my family had been living there since the 1830s or early 1840s. I mean, there's shit, there's hills named after my ancestors. And, uh, and then we move up to Muscatine. My dad was a railroader and he, he got bumped and we went up there and, wow, I talk funny and I act funny and, I, you know, and people, I'm just like, shit. And somewhere along the lines, when I was five or six years old, a buddy of mine's brother took, did some stuff that maybe should not have done. That don't have nothing to do with anything other than I didn't trust people with nothing. And I'm having trouble with personal relationships. The first conscious memory I have is wishing I could beat up my mom. And that's not a lie. I was hiding behind a toilet in the basement, listening to her get it on with my sister upstairs, wishing that I was big enough to go up there and, and stop mom from doing that. And I'm able to look at all that stuff on page 52 and see that this was all going on with me a long time before the end of July 1973. So that when I was in that buddy of mine's uh, garage attic and, and got turned loose with enough druries or hams or whatever it was to get to experience what alcohol did for me, what happened to me that day, that night, was I don't know whether I drank five or six or seven or eight beers, I didn't drink two and then get a psychosomatic buzz. I got to experience the effect of alcohol. And I'm laying on the floor of that garage attic, and I got one speaker here and one speaker here, and Jethro Tull's Aqualung album's going on, and I, I am exactly where I want to be. I didn't care. All of that stuff that they describe on page 52 was gone. I didn't care. And then an hour or two later, I got really, really sick. The next three times that I drank, exactly the same thing happened. Okay? And that's what happened to me over the course of the next 13 years. Happened with frequency. Of course, I was born in 1960. I did some drugs. That was all in addition to alcohol. The alcohol was always there. From the time that I was 18 until I was 26, the longest I was ever able to go without drinking was five days. The neat trick about that was that both times that I did it, here's the twist. I was going to stop for a week to prove myself non-alcoholic. And I start on a Monday, and by Friday night, that was a work week, so that's close enough. Let's get it. <laughs> the point that I'm trying to make to you is that 
that I drank enough to be an Alcoholics Anonymous, if that's what it takes. But that's not what it takes. What it takes is me being able to see that whenever I drank, I had no idea how much I was going to drink or how long I was going to drink or where it was going to take me or what we were going to do or any of that stuff. And I got to see that that's an allergic reaction in my body. Because for years, I thought that if I just got the right girl or got the right car or got the right job, I'd be able to drink like Dad did. I never knew that there was something fundamentally different between me and Dad. And I got to see it six years after I entered Alcoholics Anonymous that I belong here. And the only way that I got to do that was by having the courage to go in and look at some stuff that I didn't know. And it's scary to be sitting in AA for six years and and then have somebody say, you know, maybe you don't belong here. Holy cow. You know, it's like when I first came to AA, I was scared to death that I did belong here. And then six years later, exactly the opposite is true. And so I had to have the courage of God to be able to go in and look at the truth about my life. And then we started looking at this mental condition. The great idea that I can keep me from drinking and all of the stuff that I bring to that. I start thinking that there's a lot of things that I can do that will keep me from ever picking up a drink. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but it has a lot of stuff to do with meeting attendance and activity in AA. And I started to see that none of that stuff would secure that. The way that I was able to see that truth is there was a lot of other uh, behaviors that were going on in my life that weren't very healthy. Gary, you know, talked about some of that stuff last night. I was ripping off money from my AA group. I don't really like the term ripping off. I enjoy embezzling a little bit better. But um, the truth of the matter is I was lifting cigarette money and shit out of the till. Okay, that's something that to me was about as despicable as it could be. Because I knew that Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life. But I'm so morally stretched and wretched that I'm willing to steal from that that gave me life. I mean, go figure that out. I'm not saying that that makes me fundamentally bad. I'm just telling you on the inside, that's what it seemed like to me. And I'd take that money and I'd swear I'm not doing that. I'm putting I'm putting the two dollars and fifty cents back in there on Friday when I get paid and I'm never doing it again. And I wouldn't until Monday when I was out of money and I needed a pack of cigarettes and I'd get in the glove compartment and there'd be that envelope from the Sunday morning breakfast group. And I'd say, well, you know, seven or eight bucks for four or five packs of cigarettes won't be no big deal. I'll pay it back on Friday. My mind won't keep me stopped. Doesn't matter whether it's the checkbook or pornography or alcohol. Because, see, I had these things going in my life. Six years after I stopped drinking, that I thought all I had to do was say no and keep coming back. And one day, I, you know, I was going to be safe and protected from alcohol because I would have learned so much about myself and about alcoholism. All I had to do was say no when it was pushed my way. And I got to look at the truth about the way that my mind works. And the way that my mind works is it doesn't say no when it doesn't want to. See, I can have every reason in the world to say no. And that started to explain to me why it was that over those periods, that, that period of time from, my, from the time I was 18 till I was 26, that I could never stay sober. Because I, I would wake up in the morning and go, I'm not drinking today. And my buddy Stu would look at me and start laughing and say, Gomer, why are you lying to people that know you? And I'd say, I mean it, Stu. I'm not doing it today. I'd be throwing up off of buildings and I was an iron worker. And at four o'clock afternoon, I say, OK, we'll stop and get a couple of tall boys or maybe a bottle of wine or something. 
And at midnight, I wouldn't be able to find my ass with both hands in a broom closet. And I'd wake up the next morning and say, that's it. I'm not doing it. And this went on over and over and over. And I started to see that I'm mentally powerless over alcohol. That I can't keep me stopped from drinking. I can't change me. And then we started to look at that stuff that we talked about on page 52 and, and looked at that as being the unmanageability of my life internally. And I, got, I want to tell you what happened to me when I got to see the truth about all that. Because I got really scared. Because I knew I was screwed. Because I knew that, that the only way out of this now is God. You see, because when I came into AA, I had, one, I had one more ace up my sleeve. Maybe if I can stay sober, I can fit. Maybe if I can stay sober, I can live a successful life. Then the ace in the sleeve said, maybe if me and her get married and I become a dad, that'll take some of the puppy out of me. Bad reason. It would have been a lot easier just to find God then. That's about the time that, uh, as I was going through all of that stuff, that's about the time that I realized that uh, people around me would be a lot better off I wasn't around. See, what had happened was the day before I had that thought, I got out of bed about 6.30 in the morning, and within five minutes of my feet hitting the ground, the kids were crying, and Ginger was screaming at me to get the hell out of here. Go to work. Get out of the house. You crazy son of a bitch. Get out of the house. Everybody's crying. And what, you know, it wasn't like I went, oh my God, look what I've done. I went, oh my God, look what I do. That wasn't the first time that had happened. This is what happens to me when I don't drink. That stuff on page 52 doesn't get treated by me not drinking. And if that stuff doesn't get treated, I get real confused. And when I get confused, I get scared. And when I get scared, I can only cower in the corner with my guitar for so long. And then I get pissed off. And I throw things. And I break telephones. And I kick doors. And I hit refrigerators. And, you know, I, I empathize with your vending machine troubles. I had to do an appendectomy on that goddamn pot machine out there yesterday. <laughs> had my hand up in it. I thought somebody thought I was artificially inseminating the son of a bitch. <laughs> Went in for one, came out with two, though. Can't be that. <laughs> I hope I've described the hopelessness that I've experienced from alcoholism. Because what that did was that opened up the door for me to be able to lay aside everything that I thought I knew about myself and about Alcoholics Anonymous and about the Almighty God. When I was 13 years old, shortly, not too long after that deal up in that attic, I was at Sunday school at the Fruitland First Baptist Church. And a Sunday school teacher said that if you've ever had sex, you've ever drank beer, you've ever smoked cigarettes, you've ever lied, you don't go walk down that aisle this morning and get saved by Jesus Christ, you'll be condemned to eternal damnation. And I was 13 years old and about that tall and about that big around. And I had my cousin Larry's old army dress shoes on and they were like a size 12. 
And I had on some real ugly double-knit pants and a goofy damn shirt, and April Trader was upstairs. I said, I ain't walking down that aisle. And what I did was I thought I made a decision that I'm going to roll the dice here and see what eternal damnation looks like. Because if this is what it's going to take to get to God, I'm not going there. That got ugly over the course of the next 20 or 30 years. That little idea did. It was a bad idea, by the way. There wasn't any truth in it at all. That was just hocus-pocus, superstitious bullshit. Fear-based faith. Stevie Wonder said, when you believe in things that you don't understand and you suffer, superstition's to blame. Didn't he say that, huh? It's good stuff. So it opened up the door to where if I'm going to live in this thing, I'm going to have to look and, and start to find some kind of a spiritual power greater than myself. And I'm a real analytical guy, and I'm real. I love psychology, and I did. I really did. I liked it a lot. Remember I told you Ginger had a couple of kids. Did I tell you Ginger had a couple of kids when we got married and I raised them? The girl child, she's a dandy. I love her. She had me wrapped right around here since she was about 10 years old. And I always figured she's going to show up with some kid that had earrings and shit, places ain't supposed to belong, and tattoos and chaps and stuff like that. Oh, hell no. She brings home a doctor of psychology. Now, how the hell am I supposed to talk to him? I had to find a power by which I could live, just like it says in the book. And what I had to do is I had to cut past all this pop psychology bullshit. Remember, back in, the, back in the early 90s, not everything's black and white. People say that to me all the time. Rick, you're so rigid. Not everything's black and white. There's gray area. Gray area. The truth is in the gray area. When we were crushed by alcohol, this is a quote, when we were crushed, when we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis that we could neither postpone or evade, we had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or he is nothing. He either is or he isn't. Please show me the gray area. <laughs> to be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis all aren't always easy alternatives to face. Hello? Gray area. To blot out the consciousness of my intolerable situation as best I can or to accept spiritual help. No gray area. Unless I'm still under the delusion that there's something that I can do to protect me from alcohol. Unless I'm still under the delusion that there's something that I can do to make my life manageable. To change me. And that delusion was burnt down and it was gone. And for the most part, it's been burnt down and gone. What happened to me was on Memorial Day 1992, I was at a place where I was finishing up, going through the book Alcoholics Anonymous, up through the chapter We Agnostics. And on page 55, they gave me the great thing. 
I had no idea that Alcoholics Anonymous would tell me exactly how and where I would find God. Now, it says it right in the book. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. That's the forward of the first edition. Later on it says, where and how are we to find this power? So well, that's exactly what it's, this book's about. It doesn't say kind of, sort of what this book's about. It doesn't say we will show you in a general way. It says it's exactly what this book's about. Its main purpose is to enable me to find a power greater than myself which will solve my problem. Not help me to solve it, but to solve it, you know. Like, at that point, I'm not up for any help. I'm just like, get me out of this mess because I'm ready to die. I don't care. Ginger wants me out of the house. She don't care. My life's over. Now, I'm in a mud puddle, and I'm looking at this. I'm back in the woods. I'm reading this book, and it says that we found the great reality deep down within us. It said that we may have to search fearlessly, but he was there. And I got out of the truck, and I got on my knees in a mud puddle, and I said, I'm done fighting you. You can do with me whatever you want to do with me for the rest of my life. I don't care. If you want me drunk, I'll be drunk. If you want me sober, I'll be sober. If you want me dead, I'll be dead. But just empower me to be able to live your way the rest of my life. And whatever it is that happens to me, as long as it pleases you, then I'm okay with it. And I'm telling you, for the most part, I've never went back on that. As a matter of fact, I've never asked God to keep me sober since that day. And until that day, I ask him on almost a daily basis. But since that day, I have never asked God to keep me sober. I'm here today as a result of the will of God. I believe that. Because all I've done is what Alcoholics Anonymous has asked me to do. See, call it whatever you will, that was the third step for me. I didn't know the words and I didn't know the decision about agent and principal. I found that all out a few weeks later and was like, I don't change nothing. And this guy that was working with me said, you know what, just making that decision probably ain't going to be enough to keep you sober and it's probably not going to be enough to change you the rest of your life. So we looked at the book and it said, here comes this course of vigorous action, a strenuous effort to face. And he going, are you ready to abandon your life to God? And I said, I don't know if I can do that. And he said, so are you ready to do it? I said, I don't know. I don't know if I can. I want to, but I don't know how that looks. I don't know... See, I'm the guy that goes to church and I'm visually undressing the girl that's sitting across the aisle from me. This, I'm serious. Sorry, Ginge, but you know that about me. I know you do, and I think that's hot. <laughs> oh, you do the guys? That's not hot. <laughs> anyway, I can't live a spiritual life. I can't live up to it. I can't do it. And what he said to me gave me something very attainable. He said, can you count from four to nine? And I said, yeah. And he said, are you willing to to make a commitment to allow God to empower you to take you through steps four through nine? Are you willing to place your life under the care and protection of God and absolutely believe that he won't let any harm come your way while you're going through this process? And I said, yeah, I'm willing to do it. And I, I started on a resentment inventory. And uh, I found out I was a little pissed. Now, people around me knew that. I was a little surprised by it all. 
I don't really think I was that pissed because there's I don't know how many billions of people live in the world and there was only like 225 of you that made it on that list. And we went through a four column inventory and we wrote a fear inventory and we did a sex inventory. And I found out that the sex wasn't so much about the screwing as much as it was about my motives and about how I behave in relationships. And I ended up going to do a fifth step and I got a stack of documents that's about that thick. I'm serious. I'm not. It was five, five subject notebooks. And it says in, in the book, it says we are prepared for a long talk. And I think it took us about 10 or 12 hours, but we didn't go through the whole thing. He, you know, at some point he goes, he's laying on the bed and I'm thinking he's asleep. And I go, hey, man, are you asleep? And he says, no, but Jesus Christ, you're boring. He says, you know. <laughs> and, we, and we go a little bit further. And when I mean a little bit further, I'm talking like two or three hours. And he stops me. And I mean, we're, we're to the place where I'm going into the bathroom of this motel room taking a leak. And he's saying, keep reading. So I'm, I'm pissing on my shoes and reading. And, you know, and then he says, he stops me. He says, hold on, hold on, hold on. What? He goes, this is just a hunch, but this ain't going to get any better, is it? I said, no, we pretty much hit all the good stuff, Joe. And he went, oh, shit. But the thing is, we went through enough of it that I was able to see the rules and the, and the lies that I'd been living my entire life by. I got out of there and I became willing to go make amends to people. And I went and did it. And I started doing what I could do with the 10th and the 11th step. Not perfect, but as good as I could do. And I started carrying this message to people. And I want to tell you how that looked at home in Muscatine. What that looked like was everybody who was calling me sponsor up to that point fired my ass. Because I'm going into meetings talking about I don't have a choice whether I drink or not. That only God can provide that protection from me. I'm saying shit that people think are weird. They think it's weird. But if they would just look at the book and find their truth, they won't think that it's so weird. But anyway, all these guys fire me except for this one guy shows up on a Sunday afternoon. His name's Larry. And I said, what do you need, Larry? He said, come talk to you. I said, come on in. What can I do for you? And he looks at me. And Larry's about 15 years older than me. And he'd been sober about a year at that time, seven months or something. And he says, you know, they all think you're crazy, don't you? Hey, yeah, I know. What do you think, Larry? He said, I don't think you're crazy at all. He said, I think you know something and I need to know it. Will you show me how to do what is it you did? And Larry saved my life. For the next 12 months, Larry was the only guy that I, was, I was able to spend any time with. And we went to the first Fellowship of the Spirit Conference out in Colorado, and I'm working with Larry. And I'm trying to pitch people and trying to 12-step them, but nobody's biting. And I, and I get around all these people who, are, who do the same thing I do, and they love God, and they believe in God, and they 12-step people, and they write inventory, and they make amends. And, and I'm going, Jesus, I don't want to leave here. I want to stay. I want to stay in Colorado. And I'm talking, telling this to an old guy. And he's, he's, I'm crying. And he says, he says, you need to go, you got to go back to Iowa and you got to be a missionary. 
And I said, oh, I, I got pissed off. He could see it right away. He said, oh, you don't like that word. I said, no, I don't. He said, what, what do you do there? What are you trying to do? I said, I'm trying to carry a message of God's mercy and God's grace to people who desperately need it and who will die if they don't get it. Oh, he said, sounds like a missionary to me. But you <laughs> he got me, you know. So there went a little bit more prejudice. All right. He said, listen, kid. I said, I want to stay here in Colorado. He said, listen, kid. I don't know really how to put this to you, but we got things pretty well under control here in Colorado. <laughs> but I hear God needs a good man in Iowa. And I said, I suppose I'm him, huh? He goes, looks like it. So I go back to Iowa. Within two weeks of me getting back to Iowa, I had about ten guys ask me to take them through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we ended up doing what Gary called the workshop, where it started out being 16 of us. We ended up with about nine. And not a single one of them has had a drink since then. Every one of them serves God in their own way. Not all of them's in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm real cool with that. I'm not going to be the one that says you can't be as an effective agent of God being a youth minister. You've got to be an AA. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that. But what it did is it started to change our lives. And our life became about God and about Alcoholics Anonymous. And don't think that Ginger and I are a couple of fuddy duds, because this has been a pretty serious talk. We love our kids. We've got Bear, our boy. He, uh, he's my boy. They're my stepkids. I started raising them when they were pretty little, and, and so I'm dad. And Bear, he's, he's kind of a little drunk. You know, he's not very little. He's a big kid, but he's kind of a drunk. And, uh, kind of, you know, we pray for him a lot. Jessica's going to be sober four years next week. She's uh, she she's a school teacher, and uh, that's pretty neat. She's got she's a mom. She's the best mom I ever seen. No shit. They're going to move down. They're going to move back to Iowa in spring. She left, you know, when she went to college, and she said. I'm getting the hell out of this town. I ain't never coming back. And that school that I went to, they can kiss my lily white ass goodbye. I ain't never stepping foot back in there. She's reading the internet every week looking for a job opening at that school. Because she wants to go back. And she wants to give back to the community. She says it's a good community. Anyway, they're going to live down at the, our old house down at the end of the lane. We're going to get to watch that grandbaby grow up. Ginger and I figure it's a big sacrifice, but we might babysit one night a week for the whole night so the kids can go out and play and stuff. But we have fun with it all. I want to tell you a story about what we do, what Ginger and I are like. Because, see, I'm still living there. In 92, she said, that's it, you're gone. You're out of here. I'm still living there. I got a little time out for bad behavior once, too. But I found out something neat there. I found out I don't need her. I'll be just fine without her. But I sure as hell like being with her. And so I get to enjoy every day that I get to spend with her. Ginger and I are down in, in Missouri a couple of weeks ago, and we got Jessica in the car with us. And she's, she's fine. She's a lot of fun. Now I'm going to tell the story. I don't care, honey. <laughs> Jessica goes into a little convenience store 
Ginger's got her foot up between the bucket seats and she's got her sandal off and I'm kind of rubbing her foot. It's up there. I say, you want to have some fun? A few years before this, we were somewhere on vacation with all the kids and Ginger and I had talked about something a little inappropriate and the kids both, they were in their 20s, both said, you know, there's some stuff that goes on with mom and dad that should just be in a box and it should never come out. <laughs> and so... Anytime that we're all together, there's a box is like a real, they just start screaming, box, box. <laughs> so Ginger's got her foot up there and I'm rubbing it. And I go, you want to have a little fun? And she says, sure. And I'm thinking of Gomez and Morticia, you know. And Jessica comes out of that store and about the time that she gets ready to open up the car door, I reach down and I cup Ginger's foot and I just start kissing the top of it. And you should have seen a look on that girl's face when she's... <laughs> My Lord, she started screaming. You thought she'd seen 15 rattlesnakes in there. She said, that is the most disgusting. You too. And we, we had a good laugh. And that's what it's like for us. I ain't broke a telephone in years. I ain't slammed a door in years. Because of some experience that I had through the, the, the grace and the mercy of God in my relationship with the kids, I haven't had a cross word with them in years. What I'm trying to say to you is I've been changed. And I didn't do it. And I don't mean to blow your guys' bubble, but you didn't either. God came to me in a way that it took me years and years to be able to find it. See, that day that I climbed out of the mud puddle, I walked in the kitchen and Ginger looked at me and she said, What's happened to you? And I said, I found God. And she said, Where? And I said, Back there in the woods. And she said, No, 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 no. Where is God? And I started crying. I said, in the last place I ever expected. And I've never looked back on that. But I was real scared and real lonely most of my life. I didn't have friends. And my aunt and uncle, Aunt, aunt, aunt Zeta and Uncle Dick, lived about 100 yards down from, from, from Mom and Dad. And I'd go down there with my imaginary friend, Cowboy. Aunt Zeta always liked to tell the story. Rick would come up there and get off my horse and I didn't have a horse of course but she would say Rick what are you doing I said well me and Cowboy just thought we'd come up and spend a little time with the Aunt Zeta and we'd hang out a little bit and she said a couple hours I'd get her say come on Cowboy let's go and we'd go back down home and this summer I went down to Eldon and me and my buddy Jeff on our motorcycles and I said come on let's go up and see Uncle Dick and Aunt Zeta and we sat in the back porch we visited for an hour or so had to get home and Aunt Zeta you could just tell they were just tickled to death I'd come and visit them I slapped Hartman upside the head and said, come on, cowboy, let's go. And nobody, you know, he didn't know. He didn't know what that meant. And Uncle Dick, it went over his head, and Aunt Zeta just looked at me and smiled. It's love. See, what I was doing was trying to bring something to Aunt Zeta and say, I remember the stories. <clears throat> this weekend in Casper, you touched me. Now, I won't remember your names and I won't remember your faces. But Lance and Brandon, here. See, my heart got healed a little bit more. And I'll never forget you here. Thank you.